Hey, this is Joseph Massonary. I'm the pastor at Cornerstone, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope this helps you build your faith. I hope in some way that God will challenge you with a new perspective as you listen. Enjoy the message. Good morning. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me, if you would, to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews as we continue our study on the Hall of Fame of Faith. How many of you know that uh, in watching these children, they uh, not only bring joy to our lives, but some of their expressions and the things that they say are priceless, aren't they? You here this morning? Yeah, okay, just checking. Um, I'm driving in with my, my son today, and my 10-year-old granddaughter's in the car, and I was really worried about what I was wearing, and I found out later Joey thought I shouldn't be wearing it either, but I had this white shirt on, and I didn't realize I had grown since last summer, so it was a little bit tight, and it also was wrinkled, and so I said, does this look wrinkled to you? And my granddaughter says, what, your skin or the shirt? You got to love them, right? Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 23 through verse 29, and then keep your finger there because we're going to go be there back and forth to the book of Exodus. By faith, verse 23, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Last week we focused on several points, but one of the greatest ones was that verse 23, two key words, they were not afraid. They weren't afraid of the king and the power of the edicts that he had given because they were parents who loved their child as we all do and they were not afraid to do whatever it took in order to save that child's life. And so Moses did not live in fear. The parents were able to pass on to him the spiritual DNA and genetics that would serve as a foundation for their son for the entire life. The things that he followed in regards to character and honesty and purpose in life. And we found out that last week more than anything else that when we live out our faith, as a believer in this day and age in our culture, we have to choose God's ways, God's laws over culture's laws and culture's way. We have to know that we follow the Word of God, that our beliefs, our philosophy, our values are not based upon what culture tells us or our school system tells us, but they're based on God's Word and His truth. We discovered that um, in that context of verse 24, let's go on, it says, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, by the uh, rather. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead for a reward. 
And so by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, but he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea and on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Now, the challenge this morning, because when you look at the amount of Scripture that is dedicated to the life of Moses and his exploits and his leadership, his victories as well as his mistakes, we find that there are chapter after chapter uh, that is devoted to his life. We could spend literally one year and still not cover all of the aspects of how much Scripture is actually written about Moses. So I'm going to attempt to do in the next 10 minutes, and I almost feel like, Sharon, you should time me, at least wave at me when 10 minutes are up, but I want to do the fastest recap of 120 years of a Bible hero's life, and I want to do it in 10 minutes. So here we go. Are you ready? Get your pen and pencils ready. 3,500 years ago, the Lord delivered God's people from Egyptian bondage. It was around the 13th to 14th century BC. And Moses himself is revered as the greatest prophet and teacher of all time in both our faith as well as the Jewish faith. He was called by God, get this, at 80 years old. And it's in that context he was born in Egypt to Hebrew parents who set a basket in the Nile River in order for him to be discovered and to be saved from the death of the penalty that the Pharaoh had given to the Israeli people. He was, raised, he was found by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised by his own mother until he was 12 years old. And so he was educated in all of the concepts and precepts of that of Judaism. He was raised... Uh, and then educated later on in Pharaoh's court and was educated by the greatest teachers in all of the world. His mentoring and training actually was done by Pharaoh himself. The Egyptian, he was a part of the Egyptian royal family until 40. How are we doing? What are we up to? Nah, you're not, you're not timing me. At 40 years old, see we've already covered 40 years. We're getting there. At 40 years old, he declared he would no longer be associated with the Egyptian culture. Rather, he wanted to reconnect with his godly heritage to his Hebrew heritage. And so he steps into this one arena and he sees these two guys arguing, uh, an Egyptian with that of one of the Hebrews, and he stepped in and tried to fix it. And how many of you know sometimes when we step into things that we're not called to do, we make a mess of it? And Moses not only made a mess of it, he tried to settle the dispute. He ended up killing the Egyptian and then takes him and make matters worse. He takes him and buries him. And, and so he literally fled the country. He spent the next 40 years, he fled to Horeb or to Midian where it was about 750 miles away. That's where he met his wife, where he had his two sons. While he's there, he becomes a shepherd. Now, that's a far cry from being groomed to be the next leader of Egypt, the world's most powerful country and, and dynasty. But he goes there for 40 years to do what? To tend sheep. God took him from the palace to the outhouse. 
He took him from grandeur to a field in the desert. It was in that context that we realized that as Moses was in the desert, God had some things that he needed to teach him. Any of you know that God has things he wants to teach us? That one of the things we realize that if we are submitted to the lordship of being a Christ follower, he is constantly changing us, molding us, melding us, reshaping us every day of our life in order to look more like his son Jesus. And so God needed to teach Moses some lessons. He needs to teach all of his lessons, amen? And so he needed to teach Moses patience and trust. And so as he worked with the sheep, tedious work, seven days a week, you didn't get any days off as a shepherd. And not only that, he worked for his father-in-law for 40 years. God bless him that he was able to do that. Now, the Bible does tell us that Moses, in Numbers chapter 12, says a very interesting thing about Moses. Moses becomes a very humble man. I think moving outside of the realm of what you thought you were going to do with your life and all of a sudden it suddenly made a detour and 40 years later you find that perhaps your life has no meaning whatsoever and so it has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? The interesting thing about that, the word that is used there, uh, the modern translations use the word humble. Uh, the old King James said that um, it was meekness. And sometimes you would hear people say, well, meekness is not weakness. Meekness, or the word that is used here, is more properly translated humble. And it comes from a Hebrew word, anah, which means to bow down to or to lie prostrate before. Now, here's the interesting thing. The word is constructed in a manner that if, uh, Mark, can I make you king for a day? If I, you conquered the mercenary family, I would bow down to you, uh, anah, I'd either get on my knees or I'd lie before you. And here's the thing. The word means implicated. It's either voluntary or it is forced. When we have God's humility, is it a choice of our heart? Or is it an experience that God had to take us through in order for us to submit and to be humbled? Moses was a combination of both. So he became a humble man. And we all have this, uh, you know, when you think about what true humility is, and he had the ability to endure cruelty and, and many different things. But we find ourselves that Moses comes to a place in the desert while he's watching the sheep, and he encounters a burning bush. The burning bush, the fire won't go out. It just, you know, captivated him. And there was basically four things that, uh, that he dealt with in that conversation. The Lord told him, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And God has heard the cry of my people. And so what begins to happen is Moses has this conversation with God, and he begins to question everything that God's doing. Have you ever done that before? Where you question what the Lord is doing? And... and he asked everything for, well, how am I going to do it? I'm slow of speech and all these different things. And, and he said, well, who do I say send me? And God said, I am that I am, uttering the very words, the very unspeakable word of God at that point. That is the only place in Scripture, the tetragram of Yahweh we use in Scripture to represent Jehovah or God 
that word was never spoken. But yet, God says about himself, I am that I am. And he said, here's the message I want you to, say, to take to Pharaoh. Anybody know what that message was? Three words. Or four. <laughs> Let what? Let my people go. Say that with me. Let my people go. And you think about that with the help of his brother Aaron. Moses pleaded with Pharaoh in order to allow them to be able to leave Egypt. However, the Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And no offense, I think on Pharaoh's defense, you find that one of the things that happens is that when you have two million uh, slave labor, two million people approximately at that time, uh, yeah, you guys can go and we'll just shut down the whole economy and the building projects of the pyramids and all those different things. You know, they had free labor, and there's no way Pharaoh's going to let go of them. And so he comes in, but because of his... Um, because of his refusal, the Lord sends ten plagues in order to get Pharaoh's attention, to get him to change his mind. Because God has a way of, of bringing things into humility and humbleness, anah, by either voluntary submitting to what God was asking of him, or it will be forced. And God, he forced it with the Lord. And so those plagues, we know the Nile River turned to blood. There was frogs and lice and flies and cattle and lions and tigers and bears. Oh, and the hail struck down from the, the sky and killed all the fruit trees and the crops. There was total darkness. And the kicker was finally the tenth one when Pharaoh refused still. He said, I'm going to send a plague of the firstborn son of all the households, including even the cattle, in order to get his attention and for him to change his mind. The killing of the firstborn son. And how many of you remember how this story began in Moses' life? He began in the water, was spared from the edict to kill all of the Hebrew boys. It's interesting, isn't it, that God would give back the same discipline that those people had perpetrated on his own people. And so we know that what happened at that point, God sent the angel of death. He, you had to put the blood of the lamb upon the, the doorposts, both sides and on top of the door frame in order for the angel of death to know, don't go there. All of the uh, families in the Israelites were saved. But even during this time of with all the wailing and the crying that went on, Pharaoh's firstborn son was taken from him. And we find that finally he changed his mind. Finally he decided to let his people go until he decided not to let them go. And so he chased after them. They were gone. They had taken off for the land of flowing with milk and honey. And what happens is he starts going after them and pursuing them. And, of course, that was one of the great uh, miracles of the Bible was given when Moses, or rather I should say God used Moses to part the Red Sea. And so they crossed, amazingly, uh, on dry land. They were given a cloud uh, uh, of, 
of, of smoke during the day to guide them. They were given a pillar of fire at night. They were fed with manna and, and water, and they saw many other manifestations of the Lord. And the, the journey itself should take about 45 to 48 days. Uh, and it was while they were there, well, of course, we know that Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and he received the covenant from God. He received the Ten Commandments. But here's the crazy thing, because the nation of Israel still was in rebellion because they still did not have a heart that was softened to the things of God what happened Moses went up for 40 days and while he was up there the people began to complain and grumble and say you know this sucker's been gone too long what's going on up there and and it was during that time that we realized that what happened is is Moses uh, as he was during that he was up there receiving the Decalogue the Jews decided they were going to make an idol of their own because they were afraid and they wanted to take things in their own hands. And some of the grumbling was, John, we, we, we should go back to Egypt. We'd be better off there than we are out in the middle of the desert. They lost sight of what God was doing. They lost sight of God's provision. They lost sight of almost daily miracles God used. To think about the logistics for a moment, two million people, men, women, babies, where do you... Where, how do you feed all of them? God provided their food. How do you give them drink? God provided it for them. How do you provide them warmth? At night in the cold desert, God provided a fire, a pillar of fire. Everything they needed to make the trip where they were given. But it wasn't enough. And so, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments while they disobeyed the Lord and took all of the gold jewelry together and constructed a golden calf. It's ironic, isn't it? Thou shalt have no other graven image before me, the very tablets that God had instructed Moses with, and they were doing that at that very moment. It was during this time then, of course, we know that a lot of things happened at that, but we know that he was given tablets of stone. He was given the instructions on how to build the, the tabernacle, Moses has conversations with God constantly. He's saying, Lord, this job is too much for me. How many of you have felt that sometimes? More, Lord, I'm in over my head. I, I got too much on my plate. The Lord heard his cry. And by the way, there's a difference between a, a cry and a complaint. There's difference in ex expressing a need versus expressing a criticism of what God's doing in your life. Amen? There really is. And your heart attitude is the divider on that. So God gives them the plan of the tabernacle and, and lays all of that, how they're to worship. Moses tells them, I'm overworked, God. I need help. So God has him appoint 70 elders to hear the cases, 70 men to come beside him. But yet that grumbling and complaining grew. They complained about not having enough meat. They complained about having manna. Dad, is this all we're going to have again today? And they complained that they would rather go back to Egypt. Now, what's really interesting, it's almost as if you can see the, the humor that God has, or rather, should we say, uh, how sometimes he responds is in an unusual way to our requests. They literally complained, we don't have enough meat. Now, mind you, they're going to a land that's filled uh, with honey, and they're going to a place where there's grapes on 
uh, that they bring back in from the promised land, it takes two men to hold one cluster of grapes. So the good stuff's coming. Man, I, I, I need to go to the steakhouse. I'm missing meat. And God goes, you kidding me? Okay. How many of you know sometimes that we need to be careful what we ask for? We need to be careful. God provided enough quail for them for a month to feed them to feed two million people. Now, that's a lot of bird. That's a lot of feathers. That's a lot of bird refuse, if you know what I mean when they fly over, because God herded them over from the sea. There were so many quail. How many quail were there? There was so many quail that it fed two million people, but also three feet of quail, the Bible tells us, fell around the camp every day. Three feet deep. You got quail coming out of the, the wazoo. And, and you think of, of all of that, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the, every, every family was to gather for themselves. And the smallest thing that they gathered, each family, the, the Bible tells us, is ten gomers. Now, those of you who used to watch, that's not gomer pile. Ten gomers is the equivalent of about 110 bushels. So the minimum, Scott, that you would be out collecting bird would be 110 bushels every day of quail. And that's all they ate. All of a sudden, that man was looking pretty good. That quail was, uh, with it came much filth, and with it came much disease. And one of the things that I realized, the Bible tells us that even in that moment, that when they had the quail, it was still in their teeth when God brought a plague upon them. We find that, uh, how are we doing time-wise? Oh, I'm not doing too bad, though, huh? The Bible says that they had, the meat was still be, between their teeth when God brought a plague upon them. Even Marion and Aaron started to grumble. And how many of you know you got problems when people grumble, but you got big problems when your leadership starts to grumble? I was his brother and sister. And, you know, God has a way with dealing with leaders extra special. He just decided, Miriam, you're going to have leprosy. Do you think for a moment that God doesn't take grumbling and complaining and criticism of his creation and his people and his ways, that he doesn't take it seriously? Now, his mercy also showed forth that he only gave it to her for seven days. But God is telling those in leadership, those who are followers, he means business. I heard your cry. I led you out of Egypt, and I will get you there, and you will conquer the land. Oh, but God, we've been out, and it's uncomfortable. We need our own tents. We don't have ours. And they say, same old food every day. Can we go to Burger King today instead, you know? All this grumbling and complaining, and Miriam and the leadership was right in the middle of it. But it's something that continued in the life of the church because it's addressed by Paul several times in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. He, he warns a group of Christians. He says, that, but if you bite and devour each other and take care lest you are consumed by one another. He's telling the church, knock it off. 
Quit criticizing. Quit complaining. Quit grumbling about what God is doing or not doing in your life. Now here's what's amazing because complaining and jealousy and grumbling is like a destructive cancer. I think it's one of the things that God takes the most serious and I would dare say the church is the most guilty of today. We talk about people, we put them down, we complain that God doesn't move fast enough. Why did he allow them to happen? Why is this happening to me? God brought the people safely to the border of the promised land. Mind you, they're at, you know, I don't know if any of you saw the, the, the movie or the iPhone of Luke falling off the stage. Keep praying for that, brother. He broke everything there is about to break. They're, they were like Luke. They were at the edge. They could have stepped over the line and been in the promised land. That's how far God brought them. But that grumbling was like this giant force field that was in front of them that could not be penetrated. And so here they go, and they bring them to the border, and they decide, let's send in 12 spies. We've made the journey. We've got here despite all the grumbling, all the complaining, the golden calf that was built. They send in 10 or 12 spies to spy out the land. They go in, they come back, first thing they see off in the distance, these 12 guys are coming back, and there's, I don't know who was carrying them, but there was two guys carrying a cluster of grapes. I like grapes. I don't like raisins, but I like grapes. And they're coming in, you know, you know carrying it in, and, and the people are going, wow. You know, God said this was a, a land filled with milk and honey. And here was proof of it. And whoever, probably the two that carried it in, I don't know if it was Caleb and Joshua, the Bible doesn't tell us, but those two leaders, those young leaders, were the only two that came back with a positive report. And so they're ready to go in and take the land. They've finished the journey. They're ready to go into the promised land that God has given to them, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Malavite, all the different bites that are there, the invites, the uninvited. They're there right at the border, come back with a report, and these two guys, and basically Moses asking, you know, Paul, what, 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 can we, what, what can we do? What's your assessment? You know, Paul assesses, you know, your life for insurance, you know, you know what kind of policy you're going to have. Paul, what's your assessment of the land filled with milk and honey? Ten of them came back. They had a negative report. And they said, oh, my gosh. It's filled with giants. We are going to look like grasshoppers against those dudes. We don't have a chance. You think Shaquille O'Neal is big. Wait till you see these guys. And so they literally, they were filled with fear. And their advice to Moses, don't do it. Don't risk it. And how many of you know that sometimes when we assess things, we do so through our eyes, through our fears, through our human understanding and don't realize the possibility of what God can accomplish in our life and in our family and in our home and in our job in our church but there's two guys over here so wait a minute dude we got this Moses you old man we can do it the young guys you know young bucks that's why I love having them around the office hey we could do this pastor Greg and I go 
okay. <laughs> you know, the other spies, I don't know how old they were, but, but these two guys were excited. We can do it. We can take the land. We can defeat this land of giants. Is it any wonder that not only did God lead them in to the promised land, but it was under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb. You see, once again, God had a way of dealing with unbelief and lack of faith and what it means to walk in fear. And it literally, these 10 men, their reward for the bad report was they got a plague. Now we know about the COVID plague. I don't know what this one was. It may be leftovers from all the pigeons flying around, or I mean the quail, quail, pigeon, they're all big birds. Caleb and Joshua, believe it or not, were the only two that entered the promised land. But you see that retribution to these ten prophets or these ten spies it wasn't just them. God was so fuming mad at the nation of Israel. After all he had done, all he had provided, the miracles that they had seen on a regular basis, their penalty was walking around for another 40 years in the desert. Think about that. They're right here, ready to cross over. I don't know how God did it. I don't know if he blinded them. I don't know if he just gave them Alzheimer's. I don't know what happened that they went this way. They, they wandered around for 40 years. 40 years of wandering. And by the way, that's the synopsis. Is Moses dies, by the way, right after that in a, another story, but I, I don't have the time to get into that. There are so many good sermons in this, uh, this all of the, uh, the Pentateuch. Um, I want you to uh, write down three things this morning. If you're on your uh, smartphone and you have the outline, I want to just reiterate very quickly that grumbling and complaining and murmuring and the word also gossip is mentioned in several passages prevent us from fully enter, entering into the promise that God has for us. Why do you think the Bible spends so much time in the New Testament saying encourage one another with these words? It says something like this, all of them will know that we are Christians because of how high we lift our hands and how much we give in the offering box. No. All men will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. So this is a constant reminder to all of us. We need to have an attitude check every day of our life. It's something that you know, I'm sorry, you're not going to, oh, well, I heard that sermon last year. You're going to hear it for the rest of your life. And not from me, from the Holy Spirit. He's going to say, knock it off. You are forgetting I delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians. I provided food for you. I had them pay the rent. That check that came in the mail when you didn't even know that it was coming. That birth that you prayed for when the womb of your wife was closed, I opened it. And you went forward. So don't you dare complain about the blessings that has filled your life. And so 
God is in this place that he wants us in these stories to remind us. We can't complain and grumble. God wants us to be men and women that are followers of Christ that, that encourage people, that build them up, not tear them down, to be kind, to be gentle, to be loving, the, the fruit of the Spirit. You see, I could never hear too many times from the Lord in any day, did you hear what you just said? I'm talking sometimes how the Lord speaks to me. I don't know how he speaks to you, but like, are you kidding me? I came out of church a few years ago, and I don't remember what happened. And, you know, I, I, it's very rare that I've ever, I ever use curse words. In fact, I tried using one one time. My kids made fun of me because I didn't do it right. But I came out of, the, out of church, and... Some guy was just, you know, one of those guys that you want to just get on the phone and call, hey, guy, come pick this dude up. You know, citizen's arrest. Literally, he was just weaving in and out, traveling out. This, this jerk and, and knucklehead. And I, I said, um, I didn't say it out loud, as if that means anything, right? I said it in here. And I went, oh, and I said, shush. Y'all know what I'm saying, right? Shh. And I, and I, I thought, are you kidding me? I was so mad at myself. Are you, I, I just preached two sermons about gentleness and kindness and words that build up and edify. <laughs> you jerk. Now don't laugh too hard because I know you do the same thing because I've seen you. And some of you I've seen, I never let you know that because I just sit back and smile every time I see you. <laughs> but I want you to know something. We always need to work on our attitude and our building up and our encouraging and helping. First, uh, First Corinthians 10, 10 says, Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Hey, how many of you know that's pretty good advice? Don't grumble or you may have some company you don't want in your living room. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 says, For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. You may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord and jealousy and fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. Who's he talking to? That is a theoretical question, but who is he talking to? Or rhetorical, rather. He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church at Corinth. Are you kidding me? How would you like to walk into a church in their fill of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and they can't do things in order in a church service? He says, I fear that that's happening. You see, the problem of grumbling and complaining and preventing God from doing all that he wants to do in our life, our home, our family, our business, our church, is always in perspective to our attitude of praise and worship and honor and encouragement of God as well as his people. You see, we can't praise God and offer praises to him and then belittle and make fun of 
and speak ill of those that are his creation. And we sometimes like the duplicity of dualism in our culture is, um, is we think we can do one or the other. Let's move on because there's three points I, I want to make. Um, and, and might I say it this way, um, I wrote down, you know, as Moses did die as he struck a rock too many times, and there's a whole story behind that, by the way. And what's really cool about Moses, and somebody mentioned here, I heard when you uh, answered a question, Moses was born in the water, uh, Moses went to the desert, and he parted the water. Uh, every time he hit his staff upon the rock, it produced water. Uh, you know, it, you, when you look at the life of Moses, it's pretty amazing of, of, of the interaction of what water plays in his life and his ministry. Write this down, number one, and this is a good one, okay? You want a good one? Yeah? Okay. What does it take for God to get your attention? I'm going to ask you three questions today, and I don't think you'll like any of them. And I'll tell you why. I didn't like them. I didn't like them at all. That's why I knew I needed to ask them. What does it take for God to get your attention? Let's look at Exodus chapter 3. Remember, told we're going to move there real quick. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest in Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And, and I want you to know the, the references to baseball in this the Bible are unbelievable. It's not just in the beginning uh, is baseball mentioned, but uh, it talks about flames of fire from a bush. That's bush league right there. Uh, Moses, uh, the, the, the angels, we know that's a baseball team, so I'm just saying. Anyway, I got a little sidetracked because I haven't had an ability to tell any dad jokes in so long. So the bush is on fire. And Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. And Joey and I were talking about this last night uh, and, and continue to pray for him. His, his voice just is not recovering. And, uh, you know, I, I always think it's interesting when you see the little steps of spiritual warfare that we fight in life and in a congregation. You know, you have somebody like Luke who's so essential in so many things that he's doing within the life of our church and school. He breaks you know, three vertebrae and five ribs. We've got a preacher over here that his voice won't heal. He's supposed to be the spokesperson, right? You know, guys, those, those, are, not, those are not accidents. Those are not coincidences. This is the kind of stuff that happens when you fight spiritual warfare. And we need to recognize it, not be fearful of it, but recognize, pray through it, and move on. Amen? That was a weak sauce, amen. Amen? Okay. So Moses says he's going to go over and see what's going on with this bush. It's not burning up. And, and I don't know about you, but I, as a kid, I, I loved fire. And uh, I loved watching things burn. I, I think I've told some of you the, the story of the squirt gun. I, I made a torch when Mom and Dad were out of town. And I'm one of those Tarzan torches, and I put strips of cloth around, dipped it in gasoline, put it in the backyard. You know, and, I, man, and, I, and all of a sudden, I, my, my fire's going out. 
you know, and, and so brain trust, right? I get a squirt gun, fill it with gas. I'm going to keep that fire going. <clears throat> the fire of the Holy Spirit, we're going to keep it going, no matter what. So I take that gun, and I start squirting it. And all of a sudden, my torch comes alive. Ooh, that was cool. A little bit longer squirt. Shh. Ooh, that was a big one. And wouldn't you know, I thought, I'm going to do a full squirt. And I go like that, hold it down, and all of a sudden, I had fire around my hand, around the gun, around everything. And, of course, my older sister was watching all of this. And I had to do everything to extinguish that fire. So there's something about fire that, that fascinates us. And so Moses said, I'm going to go over and see what's going on. And that's when the Lord saw that he'd gone over to him, and he looked at Moses at the bush, and he said, Moses! Moses! He said it in a quite loud voice. Don't come any closer. And by the way, Moses in the Hebrew, it goes, here I am. Here's God going, Mike, I see you back there, Mike. Mike, you see me? Wave. Mike, give me a little sissy wave. Okay, that's what Moses did. Yes, Lord. Moses! Yes. He, he was so frightened. He said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. There are times in our life when we face a divine intersection of heaven and earth where God, by his Holy Spirit, allows something and as the great hymnologist wrote, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heaven and earth intersected at that moment. And the angel of the Lord said, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Because wherever the Spirit of God is, is holy ground. And so Moses did that. I couldn't help but think when I read this passage again this week, I've had two take-off-your-shoes moment in my life. Two. One of them was the first day that we dedicated this sanctuary. I think it was in 94, 95, somewhere in there. And, and I just, I know I was leading worship when we sang that song, This is Holy Ground. Anybody remember that old song? Great, three of you. Um, four, five, I see those hands. And we're singing this, that this is holy ground. I just felt like the Lord said, you need to take your shoes off. This is everything you've labored for, this church and this body has labored for for the last seven years. This is a holy place, not because of how it's built, not because of the nice chairs, but because I am taking up residence here. This is my house. And wherever I am, it's holy. And so I took my shoes off, and I was, I, I will never forget that moment, just the sense of the presence of God. Now, I don't know if anybody else did, you know, and, but, but I did. I responded that way. 
The second time was January 30th of this year when I went over to see our good friend Guillermo over at the Spanish church that used to meet here for quite a few years. He has his family worship center uh, over off uh, Rancho that is just going crazy for the Lord. And he just wanted me to come over. I had Pastor Christopher with me. And uh, that was another time I took my shoes off. But I'll, I'll finish the story in the next point. So Moses goes, here I am. And God says, Moses, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And at this, Moses, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. How many of you know that fire got his attention? What does it take for God to get your attention? Because not only do you need to recognize his methodology, you need to be obedient to what it is he's telling you to do. You see, if all we do is walk in this church and we listen, oh, that was a great sermon, good job, you guys, and walk out of here and we just, we're going to a, a cheerleading session. We might as well go to a Raiders football game. Please don't take me to the okay. Pastor said go to Raiders, don't come to church. Um, in that context, they literally, um, when you think in terms, what is, is it health issues? Is it cancer? Is it financial? Is it relationship? Is it you're tired uh, of the same sin? What does God have to do in your life in order to say, wake up! Pay attention, Moses! I am that I am! And he goes on to explain his nature and, and what he is and who he is. Because guess what? We have a God who loves us. Who cares about us the same God that saw the, the the pleas and the cries of the nation of Israel and said let my people go and he did It'd be really good right now if we had a lot more time and I know we don't but just go around and ask what what how does God get your attention I can tell you for me just quickly and most of you know me for whatever reason, it is dang health issues in my family, whether it's me, my wife, whatever it may be. And for some reason, I'm on my back, and I have to think about this and that, and, you know, he gets my attention. Maybe because sometimes we move too fast, sometimes, guys, we work too hard, or moms, you're so busy solving everybody else's problem. Number two, what excuse do you make when the Lord calls you? What is your favorite excuse? What do you tell him when the hotline from heaven calls and you decide to ignore the phone? Kind of like what you sometimes see on your smartphone and you see who's calling and goes, hey, I ain't got time for that. Not right now anyway. I got to get my courage worked up to handle that issue. Verse 7 of the same chapter, the Lord said, I have seen your misery of my people in Egypt. So I've come down to rescue them. And, and he tells them about um, where in the land filled with milk and honey. And, and what happens now is a whole litany, and I don't have the time to get into it, but there's a whole litany of excuses that, that Moses uses, just one after the other after the other. 
And, and I'm thinking, if I'm God, which obviously, praise God, I'm not, but I'm going, really, I, I just told you this is what we're going to do. And, and God was beginning to get impatient with him. And, and, and so here are Moses, some of his excuses. These aren't even all of them. Uh, well, who, who am I? I? I'm just, I'm a shepherd boy or a shepherd by profession. I'm supposed to go deliver them. I'm not a, a leader. I'm, I'm just a shepherd. Have you ever disqualified yourself from something? Well, I, I, I don't know the Bible enough. I, I can't do that. I don't talk good in front of children or I I can't and we start offering these excuses the the next thing he goes well who am I supposed to say that sent me tell him I am that I am that kind of sounds like Popeye I it, you know I'm strong to the finish because I eat my spit it's like what does that mean but that's what God told him the message you is to speak well what if they don't believe me I mean, what am I going to look like in front of all these people? The, the greatest leader of the world, and I'm supposed to go before him. He doesn't know, and, you know, little does he realize the new leader that Moses was, in fact, the son of the former Pharaoh. And how many of you know sometimes when you're on a roll of giving God excuses, you can just, they, they just roll off our tongue sometimes, don't they? They just, well, you know, I, I'm... I'm not, I'm slow of speech. I'm not eloquent. Some of the translations say that he was a stammerer. And, and, and I love because every time he makes an excuse, God provides an answer to his excuse, by the way. And when he says, you know, how am I going to speak? He says, okay, fine. You don't want to speak? I'll have your brother do it for you. Shut up and just do what I tell you. You get the drift? But he's not stopping. I'm not eloquent. And the Lord said, or Moses said to him, well, after all this, and, and, and then there's a series of things that happens. You know, what am I supposed to do? He said, what's in your hand? It was my staff. He said, throw it down. So he throws it down, turns it into a snake. And Moses starts hiding. I mean, no offense, a lot of times we, we think that the power of God is, oh, that was so cool what God did. It scares the you-know-what out of you sometimes. Moses went and hid. And that snake came, and, and, and that wasn't enough. And, and, and so even so, well, you know, they, they may believe the Lord, the God of their fathers, but, you know, that's it. He's basically saying, that's all, all I get is a, is a staff and a snake. And he said, put your hand inside your cloak. Oh, ye of little faith. He pulls it out. He's got full leprosy. He puts it back in. It's gone. Now, the magicians are looking at him going, we can do that. We can do I bet we could do that one, too. They're totally seeing it from a worldly perspective, that this is all a ruse. This is all just something to scare Pharaoh. And so he said, put it back in your cloak, and then it became normal. And one of the things that I, I, I think is absolutely amazing, um, and, and Moses goes on, finally in verse 13 of that chapter, he goes, God... Can you just send somebody else? You ever felt like that? You know, God's told you to do something. And he's probably told you to do it for years. And, I, and I'm not saying this is a word of criticism. I'm saying it to myself as well. 
There's things God's told me to do I haven't done yet. What am I waiting for? What are you waiting for? Do we need our hand to turn to leprosy? Do we need to not be able to speak in order for God to do what he wants to do? He just needs us to be obedient. So what is your favorite excuse when God calls you to do something? And I love this. Uh, excuse me, can you send somebody else? And how many of you know the Lord was kind of really ticked off at that point? And that's when he asked him this question. This is number three, and I want you to jot it down. Number three, what is in your hand? What is in your hand? Verse 2 of chapter 4, Moses said, a staff. What was the significance of a staff to Moses? Some translations say rod, thy rod and thy staff, the comfort. There's an interchange in the Hebrew culture of the office of shepherd. A staff had the crook on the end that would reach out, pull back sheep that are, you know, in the bushes. A rod might be to beat off an animal or that staff as well. But that was his instrument of his profession. Monty over here is a brick mason. The instrument of his profession is a trowel. Scott back here is a U.S. postman. That big leather bag that he used to carry is the method of his warfare. You know, Mike back there was a police officer, and his weapon of choice was that firearm. What's in your hand? He said, throw it to the ground. And we find out that that thing that Moses had been using for 40 years, a simple, ordinary staff, was the very thing by which God would bring about the deliverance of the nation of Israel. Listen to me carefully, church. You have a gift that God has entrusted to you and given to you. It is in your hand. We think it has to have a whole lot of education, a diploma, learn knowledge, or whatever is accompanied with it. But what's the common tool of your hand today? If you're a construction worker, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if it's a mixing bowl, if it's you're a teacher, what's in your hand is a piece of chalk or something to write mathematical formulas. But God used that which was simple, that which was ordinary, and made it extraordinary in the hands of a man who would listen to what God wanted to do in his life. God can take each and every one of us and do the extraordinary, not because of the greatness of the weapon that we possess, because of the power of the Holy Spirit that uses that weapon for his success. Most of us just don't ever think about picking up the staff. Well, you know, I'm just a parent. I'm, I, just, I just play songs. I... You know, you stop and think about it. 28, 27, 28 gifts are listed in the New Testament church. It all had to be on. And God is, the Bible says God has entrusted gifts to his people. And when you know that gift, it may be something. Can you, and you know, say, so well, I don't have, I'm not gifted like that. I can't leave worship like him. Well, can you write a letter to notes of encouragement through Marnie down here who needs help right away? 
by the way, just throwing that out there. Got any children's ministry folks in the house over here, back here, I saw some. You know, guess what? You don't have to preach at a college or a university or at a church. You can share your testimony back there to those kids. Do you have a writing skill? Can you pray? Can you speak? Can you smile? Can you encourage somebody? Can you give them a hug? Do you know how many people just flat out need physical touch? What's in your hand? Because whatever it is, it may seem like it's ordinary to you, but God can use it for the extraordinary. Amen? Let me just close with this. We so often look at these stories and we think that these great men and women of the Hall of Fame, we could never do that. And I think the one thread that Pastor Joseph is trying to weave through this whole series is these folks messed up. They messed up big time. And, and when I say that, David was an adulterer. Moses was a murderer. I mean, Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. I mean, you go through the line. These, these guys had, you know, they had quite the dossier of failure. And yet we elevate them and say, well, I don't have anything. Yes, you do. Because the same Holy Spirit that led them is in you. And sometimes it's just a matter of what's in your hand. What is it that God has given you that nobody else has in your family that you can help and breathe into the life of those around you? There are some people that I want to close. I've said that, what, how many times? Six now? Um, here, here's a series of guys. Shamgar. Anybody know who Shamgar was? When I think the third or fourth judge of Israel. He defeated 6,000 Philistines, or 600 Philistines, with what was in his hand. Do you know what was in his hand? It wasn't a spear, it wasn't a sword. It was called an ox goad, a tool that a farmer would use like a, a buggy whip to get the oxen to move. Go, baby, go. He, he killed 600 Philistines and won the battle and literally saved the nation. Was it because he was a skilled ox go, ox go hitter, slapper, poker? No. So God got a hold of what was in his hand. When I look at, at Gideon, he started with 32,000 men. And God whittled it down and whittled it down. And, you know, those of you who are scared, go home. 10, 12,000 left. He finally gets down to 300, and, and they're ready to get their new armor, their new metal, their new spears. Let's go to battle. And God says, no, I got something else for you. And he put in their hands a clay pot and a torch. And he said, go around the Philistines' camp. Put your fire inside the pot. And when I give you the, the command, you smash that pot. You raise your torch, and you say in the name of the Almighty, and with a shout, you will take the Philistines. The Philistines thought this great army was upon them, coming in from every direction. They got so confused, they turned on each other, turned tail, and started killing each other. And the battle was won because of what was in those men's hands. Now, if you were to tell a general today that I want you to fight a battle, uh, you know, or maybe it's like Jericho, we're going to go sing. We're going to go sing. That'll take the city, right? 
And maybe they sang so bad that the walls came down. No, they sang because of the power of God. What about Samson? He killed a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. David had several things in his hand. He took a slingshot, picked out five smooth stones, and he killed a Goliath with a slingshot. But he also could pick up a harp and play soothing music that would would calm Solomon. So he could be a warrior, he could be a worshiper, just depending on what was in his hand. With the widow of Zarephath, she had in her hand about two tablespoons of oil left and a handful of grain. And God multiplied that to feed the prophet Elijah and fed her and her son for the rest of her life. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And he did so, they say, a trowel in one hand and a sword or spear in the other hand. You see, God will use whatever you have in your hand, no matter how insignificant it was. We move into the New Testament, Peter, James, and John. What was in their hand when Jesus called them? A fishing net. Oh, that's a weapon of power spiritually. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There was a Jewish widow who had just two cheap, the worst coin that you could possess, the cheapest coin you could possess. That's what was in her hand. She gave everything. What about the little boy, five loaves, two fishes? The women with the issue of blood who just needed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, get that in her hand, and she knew she would be made well. I want you to know as we close today, the battle that you and I face, that there isn't an end to this sermon. It's not let's tie up a nice little package and let's say a nice prayer and go home. These questions need to reverberate through your mind every week of your life. They literally, you need to ask yourself these questions on a regular basis. God, what is it that, what's, what's my attention getter? Talk with your spouse, some of your friends. You know, what do you think God uses in order to get my attention? The second thing we need to talk about is what excuse do you use when God calls you? Boy, and I got some good ones. Well, you know, I'm so tired, man. I really ministered hard yesterday. Well, then I went to the hospital. And, oh, you know, I, and, you know I'm just going to stay here and watch Netflix. That's okay. You know, and, and I think uh, just a way of working my way out of whatever God had, I'll use an excuse. And finally, and would you stand with me as we pray? And, and there's no need for the piano this morning because I know we need to get going. But let's stand together. And I may have mentioned this in the past before. But you know, our hands are not only symbolic. They're not only an incredibly important appendage that we possess. Because with our hands, we do many things. Sometimes, maybe as a kid, you did honorary things and filled up a squirt gun with gas. And sometimes you use your hands to help lift people up that have fallen. Sometimes we use our hands to push people down. There's nothing more sad than watching somebody hit a dog. You know, defenseless dog. And with that hands we can hit a dog, but then the next minute we can pet a dog. Same hand. 
just different attitude. I told you I was going to tell you the rest of the story of taking off my shoes. You see, one of the things that how God gets my attention and when he speaks to me, he does it in a way that he tells me stuff to do that I don't want to do. Now, I'm not saying sinful things. I'm saying I want you to do this. The Lord told me when we were in that church service, in the middle of worship, and, and it was such a vibrant worship. There was, this was post-pandemic. We were just out of the pandemic. And all these people were singing in Spanish. I didn't understand a song they were saying except santos. and uh, 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 What's the word for, not sangria, um, what's the word for blood? What is it? I'm deaf too. We'll pray for my ears later. Um, but all these, they're singing and worshiping. And, and I'm there with Christopher. And of course, you know, in a lot of Hispanic churches, man, they dress up for Sundays, let me tell you. And, and I literally, I had, was in my best suit. I had brand new shoes on. And when the Lord said, take your shoes off, I go, here were my excuse. No, Lord, come on, really? These are tie shoes. I haven't worn a pair of tie shoes in three years. You know, I know my feet. I didn't shower this morning. They stink. You know, I did that when I was younger and, and I could move around better. All the things that went through my mind were reasons why I didn't want to do it. You know what I'm saying? And finally, after this little wrestling match, I did it. And I took off my shoes. And I got down on that chair, and I'm telling you, I felt the presence of God in my life unlike anything I'd felt in a couple of years. Because this whole COVID thing, man, it's had me messed up emotionally and spiritually because of just trying to, you know, figure stuff out that we can't figure out. And so I'm down there, and I'm, I got tears in my eyes. And then Christopher comes up. Pastor Christopher comes over to me and said, did you hear? And, and right when I just go down, take my shoes off, I'm right down there on the chair. Guillermo says, we need to ask Brother Gregorio to come up here. And, and so immediately I go, oh, great. I just took my shoes off. There's no way I can get them back on. And so Christopher, you know, Mr. Sensitive of the Holy Spirit, comes over. He taps me on the shoulder. Did you hear him? He said, get up there. And I said, well, I didn't say anything. And so I thought, okay, now my dilemma is, do I take the time to put my shoes on or I just go up because they asked me to come immediately? I went up immediately. And how many of you know that when you have size 13 feet that are double D wide and you're in a suit, you can tell pretty much you, you don't match? And he asked me why my shoes were off. I said my shoes were off because when I was worshiping, the Lord said, take your shoes off, this is holy ground. This church that I have called Guillermo to is holy ground. I was not prepared that that one small act of obedience, all of a sudden his wife's taken off her shoes. He's taken off his shoes. All of a sudden the elders come to the front. They take their shoes off. The whole church takes their shoes off. They're on their faces, and all of a sudden the whole congregation is praying and lifting their hands. Now they, wor they worship for another hour. Church service basically was over. They didn't even have a sermon. And he wrote me later on and said that, was one of the greatest days we've ever had in our church. And all I could think of, I just took my stinking shoes off. That's all. It wasn't what's in my hand, it was what on my feet. Same analogy.
Folks, those hands in front of you, they've got a miracle in them. But they'll never give that miracle in, when you're postured like this or like this. It's only when those hands are open. Let's open our hands as we pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the life of Moses. Thank you for these heroes of the faith that teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, may you place in our path this week men and women and children of whom we can use these hands to help, whether it's to lift up, whether it's to encourage, whether it's to give money, whether it's to help clean somebody's house, clean somebody's garage, help them fix their car, whatever it may be, write a note, write a song, write a book, whatever it may be. Lord, use these hands that are lifted to you. Lord, we don't want them to be just instruments of show but we want to show the world you through these hands. May you empower these hands. May you bless these hands. May you cause healing to go forth in these hands, that these would be healing hands that would touch marriages and families and sickness and disease and bring healing in the mighty name of Jesus. And all together, God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining us today, and a special thanks to those who give to Cornerstone. You know, it's because of you, our ministry, it's possible. Uh, you can click the link in the description to give now or visit us at cornerstonelv.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with friends, share it with family, help us spread God's word. You can also join us live every Sunday. We invite you, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We stream service live. Thank you again for listening.